Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Tim Impala, a band from all the way on the other side of the world in Perth, Australia, has conquered the U.S. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We've got Tame Impala live in the studio, and Greg and I review one of the most anticipated albums of 2013, the debut from Savages. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Raining Blood from the Mighty Slayer, their 1986 masterpiece, Rain in Blood. One of the founding members of that Southern California metal band, Jeff Hanneman, died at the age of 49 of liver failure. As I said, a co-founder of this quartet, one of the most important metal bands ever, and, and really one of the best rock bands, period, no, no matter what genre, of the last 30 years. Guitarist and a key songwriter in the band, he wrote most of the music and contributed heavily to the lyrics on those key early albums, where they established that blueprint for that sound, that thrash metal sound, speed metal, if you will, based in the velocity and intensity of punk, but with those classic metal riffs at its core. And man, this guy brought the riffs. I mean, as a guitar player, he and Kerry King created this architecture of guitars on all of those classic Slayer tracks where the rhythm and lead parts were sort of blurring together. 
And then they would jump out of the maelstrom. One of the guys would take the lead, and then the other guy would take the lead. And it was like two race cars flying down this mountainside, you know, taking the curves at dizzying speeds. It was mm-hmm. really amazing not only to hear on record, but to watch these two guys go at it in concert was really just a, as great a concert experience as you could have if you were into the extreme side of metal. The subject matter of the songs, too, initially they got in a lot of trouble with the Parents Music Resource Center and all these uh, censors who were saying, you know, they were, they were exploiting the subject subject matter. They were in it for the cheap thrills and the shock value. But the subject matter, nuclear war, serial killers, psychopaths, the apocalypse, to me it was a type of protest music. I always heard it that way. Here's the way the world really is. Deal with it. Here's one of the classic tracks that Jeff Hanneman wrote the music for and also co-wrote the lyrics. It's War Ensemble from the 1990 album Seasons in the Abyss from Slayer on Sound Opinions. Ensemble by Slayer on Sound Opinions in tribute to Jeff Hanneman, dead at 49. Greg, there's another great heavy band. It's Led Zeppelin with Your Time Is Gonna Come from their first album. But their time was not going to come for a reunion at the concert to benefit the victims of Hurricane Sandy. I love this story. CBS News broke it. That event was put together by Hollywood bigwig Harvey Weinstein, and he really wanted a Led Zeppelin reunion to cap it off, help raise money for the victims of the hurricane. Zeppelin 
doesn't like coming back together. They've refused to do it, except for a handful of times, Live Aid back in the 80s, the concert for Ahmet Erdogan in 2007. Who are you going to get to put Led Zeppelin back together? Weinstein turns to President Bill Clinton. As president, he played a crucial role in the peace talks in Northern Ireland. Since then, he's gone to North Korea to free hostages. He's tried to put the Palestinians and the Israelis together in a room to come to an agreement. How hard could it be to get Led Zeppelin together? (laughs) But they said no. Even though they were in the United States a couple of days before that Sandy Benefit concert, they were honored in Washington at the Kennedy Center Honors. No way. Zeppelin wasn't going to do it. The concert had to settle for Paul McCartney playing with the surviving members of Nirvana. This is Sound Opinions, and you're listening to the song Music to Walk Home By from Tame Impala. It's the psych rock project led by singer Kevin Parker, who's got a reputation as an audio perfectionist, spending months and months on every detail of the band's recordings. And he's been this way since he began to make music at age 11. I think it's fair to say that the attention to detail has paid off on Lonerism, Greg, the band's 2012 record that wound up on both of our best of lists for that year. The members of Tame Impala, Kevin, Dominic Simper, Jay Watson, Nick Albrook, and Julian Barbagello, joined us in the studio recently, and we began our conversation with Kevin's early bedroom recordings. I started the conversation by asking Kevin about how he started down the road of bedroom recording at such a young age. I guess it was just the obsession with hearing yourself played back to yourself, you know, like being able to just layer things on top of each other. I don't know, it just seemed like an amazing concept in a completely egotistical way, you know. <laughs> you had a tape recorder, you had, what, it was a four track, or what, what, what kind just, of gear did um, you have? It was just a cassette. I just had found two cassette players in the house and recorded drums onto one of them and then played that back when I was, like, hitting a keyboard and then, like, recorded that into a new tape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like a, it was like a really standard living room hi-fi tape recorder, and That's then got really that tape. primitive. Oh yeah, super primitive. It sounded terrible. <laughs> how but how awesome. old? How old so, was this? What was the age? Eleven or twelve or something? I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Tame Impala story really starts at thirteen. You're in Catholic high school, right, in Perth, Australia, and you meet Dominic Simper. Yeah, that's when we started playing music together. What we did just, you see in each other that brought you guys together? I instantly noticed that Dom was a better guitarist than me, and I was really jealous. And I was like, oh. "What were you guys listening to at 13? Oh, I was just all 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 things guitar and angsty, mm-hmm. and I just noticed Dom could shred insanely. <laughs> okay, right, so in fact, in fact, I think he was playing. I remember he was playing. Oh no, I I heard some like Red Hot Chili Peppers playing in the room next to me because we had this like music class and I thought it was someone who put on the CD mm-hmm. and it was just Dom playing like scar tissue or whatever uh-huh. and I was like what 
<laughs> Dom is here in complete silence, and he's he's running scales up and down the net. Yeah, right, yeah. So we, I think we got his number. We know, we know. But you're not posing about it, Kevin. You're not saying, I was deconstructing Smile and trying to put it back together at age 13. Oh, no, no, far from it. 13 years old, the two of you get together. You took it out of the bedroom, obviously. Did you, did you get out and play some shows at that point? No, not really. I mean, once a year, the school put on a like a fate and all the bands could like play in the school hall <laughs> while everyone else was like walking around eating fairy floss and that was like the date that we looked forward to the most we had like you know three people watching but it was still the most amazing thing is this an australian thing like vegemite fairy floss oh fairy floss yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. it's a new one on us and we're curious oh, cotton candy cotton candy all right okay The band got going in 2010 with Inner Speaker. That was the that was the album that a lot of people took notice of here in the states. That was the first anybody had heard of you. So, walk us through that that transition from, you know, two guys making music in the hallway at school to making this incredibly elaborate debut album in 2010. Well, they're always kind of separate, like well, separate but sort of connected. They'd always be me in in my bedroom making music, and then we'd play gigs. Sometimes not even the same song. Sometimes we play a completely different set list of any stuff I was recording. And some of, some of the songs we played, I never recorded because they were just live songs, you know. I never really knew how to... I never really sort of thought that the live band and the recording project were... It had the same name, but that was about it. The name was the only thing that was really linked about it. Other than that, it was just like a completely different way of making music. And it's only really now, like the last couple of years, that there's a reason to tie the two together. <laughs> so, so really that first record was basically an extension of what you were doing when you were an 11, 12-year-old kid making those crude little it still recordings is. of yourself. It's, I still record more crudely than anyone I know. Like this, this recording session we're doing now is a lot more high fidelity than, than, <laughs> than, than Lonerism was recorded. Hmm. I still record just as terribly as I always have. What do you what do you mean by that though exactly? I mean people are are saying you got these beautiful sounds. What and yet yeah. you're so <laughs> deprecating about the uh, I don't know. about the recording technology. What is what is crude about it? Is is it just old stuff or or what it's, exactly are you using? Well, it's just whatever I can get my hands on really. I mean the instruments I kind of take a lot of pride in like the guitars and drums and stuff, but the microphones like most all the microphones I own just got given to me by our friend who has a studio because he felt sorry for me because <laughs> I only had like one mic that I use on the drums and, and sometimes I can't if, if I'm in a spot where I got to record something I don't have anything then it's just going to be singing into the laptop mic you know and it, well I, in fact I never did that on the album but the lead guitar in uh, Apocalypse Dreams is like the guitar just plugged with a lead and a headphone jack and like a, a jack plugged into the microphone input on my MacBook and then just like screwed with it on Ableton. Like that's the sound, there's no pedals or anything, it's just and that's pretty much as terrible as you can get.
Well, uh, Tame Impala is here in the studio with us on Sound Opinions. How about a song, Kevin? Uh, this is um, Why Won't You Make Up Your Mind. By Tame Impala. All Why Won't You Make Up Your Mind by Tame Impala, live on Sound Opinions. Coming up after the break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more music and discussion with Kevin Parker and the band. Then later in the show, Greg and I review the new album from the London-based post-punk quartet, Savages. Savages. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And our guests this week are the members of Tame Impala, the Australian band led by Kevin Parker, with a sound that's a mix of vintage Pink Floyd-era psychedelic and modern pop. Tame Impala's debut, Inner Speaker, received notice for this sound, and then they went on to enlist veteran record producer Dave Fridman for the follow-up, Lonerism. Fridman's credits include albums by The Flaming Lips, MGMT, and Mercury Rev. And we continued our conversation with Kevin, wondering why the band wanted to travel halfway across the world to upstate New York to work with the mysterious but congenial Mr. Fridman. It was obvious, really, because um, we were all such massive fans of music that he's been involved with. It was just such a like a mystical thing, like the Dave Fridman sound and what he does. You know, it was like this. He was like a he was like a rock star to us. And then you yeah. meet him, and he's like a high school basketball coach. Yeah, and you're like, you made that freaky music. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what like that's what's like whenever you meet someone that makes like the most tripped out music you've ever heard. Is that they, they always just end up being a pretty chilled out normal guy? Yeah, it's just testament to how good he is. The the distance that people travel to get there. I mean, like, New York State is, I think it's almost exactly the other side of the world for us. Like, if you draw, a line. You drill a hole, if you get a globe and drill a hole through, it, through <laughs> uh-huh. Perth, you'll end up pretty close to New York City. In upstate New York. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was surreal. I was jet-lagged and I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about the album and um, I was going totally, totally cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we have heard. You are an audio perfectionist, even sound checking for this session. What was it that Dave Fredman was able to do for you that you didn't think you could do yourself? I don't know. It's hard to put a finger on because if I knew what it was he was doing, then I'd be able to do it myself. <laughs> then you could you do know? it yourself. <laughs> it's because I don't know what it is. I listen back to his mixes because I, I do it like a rough mix before I get it to him. I'm just like, this is what I'm trying to do. He just has this way of um, giving it this extra layer of sonic, crispy goodness you know okay. I, I can't even yeah it's because i can't even put into words or you know like know really what it is that that makes it so appealing okay well in some ways i would imagine you're immersed in this recording for a year or more and then it's just probably great to have another set of ears on it yeah definitely i mean i've got the rest of the guys as well to like mm-hmm. tell me what they hear when because it's true you totally lose perspective sometimes i you know listening back to it for the 50th time in a day and you think it sounds like basement jacks or something <laughs> and your friends come and they're like dude it sounds like psycho rock <laughs> so i would imagine fridman having talked to the man it sounds like he could be a, a pretty good psychologist too he'd be like a kind of guy that would be reassuring as opposed to 
oh, this is crap. We got to start all over totally. again. Totally. Yeah, he's the ultimate stabilizer. He's like, I'll be like, Dave, I'm freaking out. Like, you know, there's drums. I don't know if they're too loud or too quiet. He's just like, it doesn't matter. No one's going to be thinking that, you know, because the, he's just like, the audience isn't going to know that there was another version of the drums where they were slightly quieter. Uh-huh. So he just, you know, but at the same time, he understands what it's like to get totally bugged out about making an album. Of course. What record in particular of his that you heard led you to to his place thinking, I'm on the right track here, this is a guy I want to work with? Was there, was there any particular album or particular group, song, recording that he made that led you there? Chronologically, uh, Oracular Spectacular. We all just totally went nuts over that album. And GMT, um, right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and coincidentally, like a few weeks later, we went to Japan and saw the Flaming Lips and then became Flaming Lips slaves after that. And it sounds like you've got certain qualities that you picked up from some of those recordings. I mean, I, I get the sense that you're, you're not afraid of a little bit of distortion, sometimes a lot of distortion. <laughs> there's beauty, but at the same time, there's also uh, this love of this big, crunchy, noisy sound. And yeah. it seems like that's something that Fridman does well. It's his bread and butter, mm-hmm. different types of distortion. But it's, it's an art because just distorting something doesn't necessarily make it sound good. Because there's that, there's that kind of distortion, that kind of crunchiness that has its own kind of emotion to it. Mm-hmm. But when something is like totally rumbling and like fuzzed out in a particular way, it makes you really fall in love with it. 30 years ago, they would have said it's a defective recording. You can't put that out. Exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but you're okay with that. That's fine. Oh, man, I wouldn't be able to live without it. <laughs> <laughs> so Inner Speaker puts you on the map in a big way. The band is is touring the world at that point, right? Well, I mean, it was kind of just something that, not not thrust upon us, but it just became our lives because we were signed to a record label and touring became a thing. And it was uh, for us, it was this totally new thing. It's just a new experience of traveling all the time. Because up until then, we just played gigs in Perth, you know, every sort of few days so yeah. you were able to play that often every few days really oh you can play whenever you want in perth there's always places to play <laughs> do really? people do people listen to you <laughs> yeah sometimes yeah. <laughs> the the audience doesn't it doesn't even seem to be like a, a significant part of the the thing it's more just like inventing a band and then putting on a gig later that night and if hmm. anyone's watching then great but if not it doesn't matter how about another song kevin yeah and tell, awesome. tell us what you're gonna play we're gonna play uh elephant all right
Tame Impala on Sound Opinions with Elephant. Killer tune. Thank you so much, guys. I'm glad you played that one because it's interesting. There's two songs on the last album, Lonerism, that, Kevin, you wrote with Jay, who, as I said, has been part of the band, part of the crew since 2007. He's playing synthesizers at this session and eating an apple. Is it bad if when you eat an apple your gums hurt a lot? (laughs) Might be time for a visit to the dentist. Do you have socialized medicine in Australia? (laughs) My mouth is really sore. (laughs) He was, eating, he was eating an apple for most of that song. I'm glad you, you've got a mic, Jay, because I'm, I'm curious, how does Kevin write? How do these songs originate when he brings them to you guys and says, we're going to play them live? Uh, what kind of shape are they in, and what did you add to Elephant? He just does them all himself and has like a 30-second demo of the chorus. Elephant, I, I'm not as proud of as Apocalypse. Apocalypse Dreams was my chords in the verse. Yeah, Elephant. Great song. Elephant, it turns out, uh, my one contribution was accidentally ripping off Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, as in, I'm not as entirely proud about that. I got Apocalypse you. Dreams, I am, you know, because I, I, I did more on that one. So know. there are demos. There are roughed out ideas of what these songs are going to be when Kevin presents them. Elephant was, is Kevin's song, and I just added a little bit in the middle. Mm-hmm. Are you writing on acoustic guitar, Kevin? Or, or, or are you constructing these songs in the studio with all these different sounds from the beginning? Yeah, totally. It's just sort of building it from the ground up it's just whatever instrument's lying around it really dictates what the instrument what the song gets played on yeah in fact we still don't know who wrote the chords for the soul you know like the, the instrumental break in elephant we still don't know who wrote the chords for that hmm. we have discussions about it where did it come which from sometimes turn to arguments <laughs> it was definitely me because kevin never p- plays a minor and then does a, a major and then does a minor afterward we also don't know who wrote the bass line of Apocalypse Dreams. It's definitely I me. Think it, I think it was me. It's definitely me too because I remember I, I remember <laughs> when I played in the demo, it's like, I got, doesn't this sound like Outcast? you know? Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, I remember thinking that your chords sounded like the Jackson 5, so I purposely did a Jackson 5 bass line. This is turning into like the Let It Be documentary where a band breaks <laughs> off right, on right, film. He's still eating stuff. <laughs> when, <I laughs> when, when I played it to him, I told him it sounded like Can You Feel It by the Jackson 5. I'm glad Jay mentioned these words, Pink. Floyd. Kevin, I, I, this was my album of the year, Lonerism, last year. Oh, we- um, and, and I love this genre. I, I've spent a career writing about psychedelic rock. Mm-hmm. And how did you fall in love with so many of these sounds and this approach to music when, you know, for all intents and purposes, it, it, was, it, it was 40 years before you were born? I don't know. Like, we all kind of, that's how we all kind of became friends. It was just love of crazy music. But I mean, the Pink Floyd one's a weird one because... I'm not even really a big Pink Floyd fan. In fact, I, I was the guy in the house that was always like, I didn't get Pink Floyd. I, mm. everyone, everyone was like a disciple, and I was like, I don't, I don't get it. I still don't listen. I don't listen to Pink Floyd. I, I can't even really listen to Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd. Mm. He it, it, used to do the most disparaging impressions of Sid Barrett. We're the ones really? that like Sid Barrett. He thinks he's hilarious. <laughs> I just don't get it. I mean, space rock. They they started the space rock thing, but. Right. But is it the whimsy that bothers you? You know, I've got a mouse. He hasn't got a house. I don't know why I call him Gerald. It's whimsy. It's just, yeah, yeah a bit kind of anti whimsy. I don't know. Okay, all right. Doop, 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 doop. <laughs> I got, all right, I got, I can respect that 100%. As many people as I interviewed for my book, hundreds of, of, of musicians in this genre said, uh, it was split right down the middle, said, you have to take psychedelic drugs to be able to make this music. As said, the other side, I've never taken drugs. The goal for me was all about creating a new world in that space between your headphones. Where do you stand on that issue? I don't know. Like, we smoke weed sometimes. Some of the songs, I was stoned when I wrote them. Some of them, I was completely sober. There doesn't really seem to be any correlation between whether you're high or not. It's kind of like, if you 
can enjoy music sober and then you take drugs or do whatever and it's even better than great. But if you need it, if you need the drugs to to enjoy it, then you, it's kind of something wrong there, you know. I remember <laughs> realising a lot of my naffest songs were the ones I wrote stoned because I thought mm. they were really good and they probably weren't actually that good, you know. Yeah. I read somewhere once that Josh Homme or whatever from Queens of Stone Age sure. yeah. said he stopped smoking weed because um, he was driving home one day from the studio and it was a Britney Spears song. And it wasn't a good one either. It was like a newer one. And he thought it was like the best thing he'd ever heard or something. <laughs> and, then he realized, and then he was like, oh man, i got to stop smoking weed. Um, I was just going to say that the whole psychedelic like music and crazy music things and drugs, they seem to like be a supplement for the other. For example... The, some of the people we know that are the most like out of it, you know, the biggest acid heads or whatever, they make the most simple, just cruisy music. And some of the most sober people we know make the most effed up music. You know, it's kind of like if you're on drugs, you don't really need that kind of sonic explosion to to satisfy. So I want to throw out another band, and Jim mentioned Pink Floyd, Supertramp. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, they're, like, probably my biggest influence. And it blows me away how, like, people hear, the, like, the Sid Barrett, but they don't hear the Supertramp. Because all my, all my melodies are kind of just that kind of, like... Especially the last album's got that kind of, like, blown out but still pop kind of thing. So your lonerism is the, your answer to, what, Breakfast in Breakfast America? Breakfast in America, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which is a great record, um, and I can see where you're coming from because that guy in, in Breakfast in America is singing a lot of melancholy songs with these great, high, happy melodies. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you know, you know I want to get into the theme of, of, of lonerism itself. It, it 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 obviously works as sort of a song cycle. Did you sort of approach it from the standpoint that I'm going to be writing a series of songs about this subject, or did it, it just sort of end up that way? Yeah, I think it kind of just congealed slowly. I didn't really know I was writing songs that had this kind of theme going if there is even a theme I mean you know like when I started to think about it as like an album having like a thing I found myself um, like just looking at the songs differently looking at how that relates to like the whole lonerism thing rather than like you know starting out with this idea and writing 12 songs about that it was kind of just they all happened naturally well, people extrapolate from that, you know, they think, okay, you know, guy who makes records by himself, you know, for years at a time, obsesses over these details, uh, they're thinking you're writing about yourself. You're, you're, this is your life that you're, you're pouring into these songs. How do, you, how do you respond to that? Well, I guess it is, at the end of the day. I pretend that it's not while I'm doing it so that I can kind of feel more confident about it because I'm, you know, I'm pretty self-conscious when it comes to writing lyrics, so I kind of just pretend that it's someone else Mm -hmm. you know and that kind of gets me to the other side you're listening to sound opinions we are here in the studio with tame impala and they're going to play another song kevin tell us what it's going to be this is feels like we're going to go backwards all right let's do it i give some tempo
Feels like we only go backwards from tame Impala on Sound Opinions. You are listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd with Jim DeRigatis. We're here in the studio with Tame Impala, Kevin Parker, Julian Barbagello, Nick Albrook, Dominic Simpa, Jay Watson. Thank you so much for coming in, guys. No worries. Thanks for having us. You can hear all of Tame Impala's live tracks at soundcloud.com slash soundopinions. While you're there, check out all of our archived episodes. And we want to hear from you. What's the next up-and-coming band you're listening to? Tell us at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we review the new album from Savages, and it's my turn to drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Shut Up from Savages, a London quartet that has been a band for barely over a year. Got together in October 2011. Jenny Beth on lead vocals, Gemma Thompson on guitar, Aisha Hassan on bass, and Faye Milton on drums. They put out a single in the middle of last year that attracted a lot of notice in the U.K. press, a track called Husbands played their first U.S. gig at CMJ in the fall of 2012. Big reviews, big critical support, the next big thing from England, everybody was saying. Followed it up at South by Southwest Music Conference in March of this year. A lot of critics came away impressed. Jim and I both saw those gigs. We talked about it on this show. All leading up to the appearance of this debut album. Signed immediately after South by Southwest to Matador Records. Now it's finally here. Silence Yourself from Savages. Here's a track from it called She Will on Sound Opinions.
will, by savages from Silence Yourself on Sound Opinions. Greg, this is the sort of album that makes me happy to be a rock critic. Reminds me why I love this. I went out on a limb when we reviewed the band at South by Southwest and said I hadn't seen a front person this powerful since Kurt Cobain. What was I talking about? There's the charisma from Jenny Beth. That's one thing. Another thing is, remember when we first saw Nirvana? They arrived in the world fully formed. You know, this was a band with a complete vision and an idea and a sound, and boy, it didn't seem like they'd just come together. But more importantly, they were taking familiar ingredients and making them fresh. That is what any artist does. Everybody knows there's nothing new under the sun. Kurt was taking Black Flag, Black Sabbath, and Bubblegum. That was the recipe he gave us. He put it together for Nirvana. Savages are taking those post punk sounds of wire, stripped down minimalism, and early cure, killing an Arab kind of swirling guitar atmospherics, but also that angular punk propulsion of The Fall, let's say, or Gang of Four. We've heard these sounds before, but you listen to this band live and you feel like you have never heard music like this before. On the record, they let a record be what a record should be. It breathes. It has room to expand. There are washes of ambient guitar and all sorts of swirling atmospherics on about half the disc. I'm impressed by the band on album. I'm impressed by the band on stage, and I love its manifestos. It is telling the world all of this digital information is drowning you and keeping us from connecting with one another romantically, intellectually, civilly. They have this whole shut up, silence yourself manifesto. No cell phones at their shows or they're going to kick your butt. They're ser- I love this band. I love everything about it. I love its ideas, its music, its live performance, and its album. Buy two copies of this and give it to somebody else you love because they need it too. Well, they're a very serious band, and they're, and they're kind of scary. I mean, they attack you when they're up there on I stage. I love that. <laughs> and it's a great thing. You know, when you heard a track like Husbands for the first time, it's basically about, okay, silence yourself and confront the truth about your life. Suddenly you walk into your house, and you don't recognize my house, my bed, my husband. All, all these things are new to me, and I don't know why I'm here. Yeah. That's basically what that song says, and it's really terrifying. You know, about your mundane existence, do you really know the truth of it? And the ferocity of her vocals is really great. But I think the rest of the band, too, is hugely a big part of this. Absolutely. The guitarist Gemma Thompson, I think, is one of those post-punk guitar heroes in the mold of somebody like Gang of Four's Andy Gill or the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's Nick Zinner, where they're kind of reinventing the instrument, using it to color and create all this atmosphere around the songs. I think she's just a genius on this record. And that rhythm section. Hassan on bass, it's a lead bass on most of the tracks. She's amazing. And Faye Milton on drums is a terrific drummer. It's a great little power trio behind Jenny Beth on vocals. This is a great debut album. It's going to be, you know, people are going to be hard-pressed to keep this out of their top ten or top fives by the end of the year. I think it's a buy-it album all the way. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Jim, as often as possible, we like to take a swim out to the desert island, plop down on the beach, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a track we cannot live without. What are you going to play this week? Well, Greg, I'd like to play more Savages, but we can't live (laughs) by Savages alone. 
It was fascinating to me that during the Tame Impala interview, Kevin Parker mentioned Supertramp because, you know, he had the fearlessness to say, I'm going to say that this not hip at all band really influenced me because really all the hip rock critics would never say they love Supertramp. I don't care about such stuff. I love Supertramp. I really did. I'll never forget going to see the Breakfast in America tour at the Brendan Byrne Arena in New Jersey. Somebody had set me up on a blind date. And she was actually blind. It was a weird night. Anyway, Supertramp was a great band that was driven by your favorite instrument, keyboards. They were initially part of the progressive rock explosion, but I think that they were really more sort of an orchestral pop band, more than progressive rock. It was never about the virtuosity and the solos. It was about the songs. I'm going to play one of the songs I love. It's called Take the Long Way Home that underscores the best parts of the Supertramp legacy. It was a a combination of two people driving the band, Richard Davies and Roger Hodgson. We had those high falsetto vocals. We had that wonderful keyboard melodic approach. We had a a love of sort of uh, threatening atmosphere. You know, this song, Take the Long Way Home, I I don't even know what it's really about, because you don't with many progressive rock songs, but it creates a mood. It creates a mood of ominousness and of putting off the future, which isn't so promising. Don't feel that your life's become a catastrophe, is one of the lines. Another Supertramp album was called Crisis. What crisis? Memorable cover of a woman sitting in a lounge chair as if at the beach, but she was in the midst of a nuclear explosion. That's that band's aesthetic in a nutshell. Here's Take the Long Way Home by Supertramp on Sound Opinions. Supertramp with Take the Long Way Home from 1979, my Desert Island jukebox pick this week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to talk about the legacy and music of Joy Division with one of the founding members of that band, Peter Hook. 
Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Tame Impala was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Adam Yaffe. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. We should try to get him to put Led Zeppelin back together. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. And if I can get to love you, what's the telephone bill? My name is Ian. Regarding Nick Drake, uh, I'm English. I was at college in those years, uh, 68, 69. In my group house, we had both uh, Five Leaves Left and uh, Bright Later as soon as they came out and listened to them all the time. Five Leaves Left, you may not know, refers to a little piece of paper that appeared in a packet of cigarette papers. Um, after you got partway through the packet, it would say, okay, you've got five leaves left. So it was a nice joke that we all enjoyed. You would see so frail In the cold of night When the armies of emotion it's so thrilling to me that my children and a lot of people even younger than them are now enjoying his music. It's so brilliant. Yeah, we knew it then. <laughs> Thanks for your great show. Hey, this is Colin Flanagan. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Just caught the tail end of your segment about Japanese music. I wanted to tell you guys about an artist called World's End Girlfriend. It's actually just one guy, one producer, uh, plays a bunch of instruments, does these incredible soundscapes that start off as sort of neoclassical compositions and then slowly morph into these schizophrenic monstrosities and then somehow he brings it all back. So if you haven't heard him, check him out. That's it. Thanks a lot, guys. Hi, John Kutch from Harvard, Illinois. Just listening to the Japanese music show, and I think you guys missed out on the chance to showcase The Pillows. It was a real rock band and not some J-pop. They were uh, the band from Fui Kui, which all the hip kids know is one of the best uh, Japanese anime cartoons out there. But I think you should uh, consider The Pillows as a great Japanese rock band.
Hey guys, my name is Joel. I'm from St. Pete, Florida. I just heard your show where you had uh, the Shuggy Otis song, Strawberry Letter 23, as the Desert Island Jukebox. And I never knew that it was a cover when Brothers Johnson did it. I had been in love with that song ever since I heard it in the movie Jackie Brown. Thanks for teaching me that, and keep doing what you're doing. Bye. messages to share your opinions on sound opinions call 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week on sound opinions from wbez chicago and distributed by prx